welcome back to The Big Run. How's the weekend looking? What's the mileage like? What's in store? Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for all of your kind comments from last week's magazine episode, in particular the national coverage. It was a real joy to put together. Also, very exciting news. I'm very pleased to announce that this month, The Big Run is being supported by Saw Running. Now, you may know Saw, they produce high-performance running apparel from the insanely fast race kit to your everyday fit-for-purpose, function-first training staples. And there is soon to be a much-requested and much-sought-after women's range. I've got a lot of time for the people at Saw. I've worked with them before, producing their own podcast, Saw Long Form. You should definitely give it a listen. But this spring, Saw and The Big Run are giving you and a running partner the chance to win a marathon system each. So for you and a running partner, you can both get your hands on a marathon system. Now, what is a marathon system? I hear you cry. Well, it's comprised of a pair of marathon shorts that has storage for up to six in-race gels, plus an ultra-light race vest, the latest iteration 4.0 that weighs a mere 47 grams in a size medium. I have run in the marathon system, and I can attest it is perfect those long runs and for race day the marathon shorts in particular are a genius feat of design by tim and they work so well for your long training runs and storing all of that vital nutrition so how do you get your hands on the marathon system i hear you cry well we want to hear about a performance by a training partner a friend of yours anyone who you're connected to that has inspired you recently Now, it's not just about smashing a PB or or breaking the tape. Performance can, and it does mean different things to different people. So we want to hear about a performance that has inspired you, a performance that has stood out to you, someone who has overcome adversity, whatever that word performance means to you. It doesn't need to be race related. It can be training progress. It can be a huge personal feat, returning from injury or embracing a brand new challenge. We just want to hear why it's inspired you and why it's a worthy winner in no more than 250 words. So how do you submit your nomination? So to submit and being with a chance to win, simply email your tale to alex.i at sawrunning.com with performance of the month in the subject line. That's alex.i at sawrunning.com with performance of the month in the subject line. Don't worry, I'll be putting this all in the show notes as well. So fear not, you will still be able to find out this information. Nominations must be in by Monday the 11th of April. That's Monday the 11th. And I'm going to be sitting down with the team at Saw to decide our chosen winner. Both the winning nominee and the nominator will win a marathon system and we'll announce the winner later in April. And what's more? What, there's more? Yes, there is. Saw are also offering 15% off for listeners of the Big Run podcast until the end of April. So kick yourself out. For the race day in spring, for the summer miles ahead, enter the code BIGRUN15, that's Big Run in lowercase, followed by 15 when checking out at sawrunning.com. Today's guest is a creative director, podcast host, holistic life coach, and a magazine founder who is passionate about movement. 
He uses it as a tool for self-exploration as well as performance. Originally from Canada, but now based out in LA, he works with hugely established brands to create rich and meaningful experiences. In this conversation, we touch on his early life in Canada, starting the hugely successful inventory magazine that began its life in a one-bed apartment that was photo studio, meeting room, and everything else in between, to grinding down his own physical and mental health through flat-out work in the fashion industry, to his own journey of self-discovery through alternative medicines and practices, before moving on to his experience with movement, the foundational role it plays in his life, and how mindfulness and endurance can go hand in hand. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to welcome Ryan Willems. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on The Big Run. Really excited to to dive into your kind of story. And I thought, you know, with yourself being a, a life coach as well, I thought it'd be good to sort of set intentions for this conversation and like sort of subject areas within those intentions to to touch on. So I thought we could go through sort of design, exploration, healing and movement, because I feel like those sort of four subject areas are, are fairly applicable to you. And if, if one was to do a, a quick Google of you, the term immersive creative direction would come up. And I think that's a really fascinating term, but I think it's also really useful for people listening to maybe get a better yeah. understanding of what that actually means so can you describe what what immersive creative direction is as if you were as if you were explaining it to it to a small child in its sort of simplest terms <laughs> you know that's always a good practice but one i've not attempted on this specific question <laughs> i guess I, i've struggled with years you know especially coming out of finishing inventory magazine and you know inevitably you get the question like what do you do what are you and mm. so then, you know, the term creative director just became, uh, you know, anyone that had an Instagram was a creative director <laughs> for a period of time. And, and it means so many different things to different people, depending on sort of what facet or what industry you're sort of coming from. So I really struggled with just saying, oh, I'm a creative director. Um, but ultimately, that's what it is. And it just includes such a variety of things. And really, that comes from from my experience with Inventory Magazine, where I had to, you know, I was writing the blog every day, we were publishing a print magazine, we were doing retail, doing all the buying, we were collaborating and creating brands, creating our own retail stores, and then spaces within Dover Street Market, um, special print projects for other brands. And, and so that kind of just carried on where it was just this total diverse mix of things that really my aim when I'm doing something is try to create like a holistic 360 experience, you know, so whether you look at a piece of print or you smell a candle or you go into a space or you look at the Instagram, it all feels like you're in the world of whatever the sort of brand or entity is. And so it's just trying to cover as many of the touch points as possible and create hopefully an enriching and interesting and an inspiring experience. Like creating a, a feeling almost. Is there like mm -hmm. a, an emotional response that you're trying to sort of to create as well? Yeah, I would say so. You know, I remember when people would come into our the inventory store and they'd be like, oh, I feel like I'm in the magazine, you know? And like mm. that to me was like a, that was like a success of what we created to some degree. And I remember designing a website for a big fashion retailer. And, you know, I think when you go on, like an e-commerce store so much of the time it's like 
oh, I need this thing or I need that thing or it's going to sell out or it's on sale and I need to buy it now. And my, my like brief basically was like when you listen to like piano music by like John Cage or something, like that's the feeling I want when you go onto the website. Mm. I love and that. So, I love that. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I just lo- I instantly got that sort of sense experience in my mind as soon as you sort of described it. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's like, well, maybe I don't want to like your safe place for your nervous system to be on an e-commerce site of a fashion store mm. in, in retrospect. But, you know, being able to create that feeling no matter what the thing is, you know, is through a medium that generally does the opposite. It was, it was kind of an interesting challenge anyways. Okay, well, let's now we've kind of got a better handle on, on what it is. Let's roll back then and sort of to see if we can stitch together the journey to, to where you are now with that sort of title with a, a sort of slight editorial audio journey through your life. So let's go back to Vancouver before you sort of creating inventory. Where did your kind of, or, or can you trace it back, like your love of design? Was there a specific sort of uh, touch point of where that kind of passion started for you? I think it started quite early. You know, my, my parents actually um, owned and ran an advertising agency since I was born, basically. So I was always around visual arts. My dad is an artist and art director, and my mom was sort of the owner, runner of the business, uh, writer. And so, yeah, you know, they would be talking about this sort of stuff. Uh, my dad would always be drawing and doing art. And and then my parents started taking us traveling, my brother and I, when we were pretty young uh, to the US or to Europe. And so we were sort of introduced to these things. And for me, I was really drawn to product specifically through sports and then fashion as well. So, you know, watching athletes and getting obsessed with, you know, Jordans or somebody like Allen Iverson in high school and just watching and music videos and music as well. So it was kind of those, that combination of things that really like got me into it from a pretty early age. It's interesting. I didn't realize that both your parents were in that field as well. When you were kind of first making your sort of first steps into that world, was there, was there a sort of creative dialogue that you had with them? Would they like, so would you bounce ideas off them? A little bit there was, you know, my, my sort of path into it was around 2004, five when I was I'd graduated from high school I had dropped out of university and really didn't know what I wanted to do and I saw what they were doing and I thought well I could you know I could be a copywriter I understood what that was I mm. saw how it fit into the business that they were doing and so I was into you know sneakers and rap and so I was like well I'm just gonna start pitching ideas to some magazines and just try and, you know, learn that craft a little bit and got rejected from every magazine I uh, emailed and then decided, well, I'm going to start a blog, you know? And so it was really from there that I just started to pick up and snowball and become an online magazine and then an actual magazine. And um, so it was kind of this, I thought, well, I guess I'll just go into their business, you know? And then it ended up taking me in this total other direction and, Along the way, you know, they've been there for feedback. My dad has actually contributed uh, illustrations to inventory and a couple other projects I've done as well. So it's been cool in that sense. I love that. I love that sort of yeah, that collaboration with your folks is lovely. So let's let's get into inventory then. So I love this thing of you sort of wanting to 
contact other outlets and see if they would sort of take you on with ideas that you were pitching and then that decision to like all great creators do to, to decide to kind of do it for yourself and forge your own path. So how did that journey begin? And then sort of what was it like when it really did, like you say, really start to snowball and become something that you kind of hadn't imagined? Yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. You know, I was, it was, you know, sad to get rejected. I remember emailing like sneaker freaker and magazines <laughs> like that. Um, and I can't remember the other ones, but you know, I was very much like in that world of like that, era of streetwear really emerging I was pretty pretty into it for sure Mm. but you know it was among that time when it was the first sort of blogs like that like I think Hype Beast started by Kevin and he was living in Vancouver in like 2005 or maybe 2006 so I was like you know what I'm just gonna start writing and then eventually I think about a year after that I was like I'm gonna try and make this into something like an online magazine and I remember being like you know, we had a little team and we did some actual photo shoots for it. And it was kind of content wise laid out like a magazine would be. So each month there was like three or four features and a couple small articles and an editorial or two. And, you know, I was on like a bunch of forums and commenting and engaged. So that's where people started to find it from. And I remember like launching it and I had like 500 unique visitors on the first day. And I was like, this is something. (laughs) It was like, it felt like a really successful (laughs) launch. And, and then I, you know, I'd write down like, okay, I want, you know, a thousand visitors a month, you know, after three months and 5,000 visitors a month after whatever. And so, you know, I was really into it. And one of the things like I had never been actually a designer or anything like that, but I got my first MacBook, and like through that, I was able to, like very rudimentally learned some design and and that actually just was like the tool that opened up this whole world to me in some ways too. That's interesting. So what it was that sort of journey of of kind of being able to manipulate stuff within within your computer and seeing like things that you'd had in your head being sort of created in front of you like that was kind of a slight thrilling thing. Thr- thr- oh, I can't even speak. A slight <laughs> thrilling thing for you to see. Yeah, it was. Um, it was the first time I felt like I was actually able to communicate like through visuals, through something I'd created and mm. like have somewhat of a like aesthetic language or tone or feeling. And so it was, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience to be given that power. And that's kind of, you know, the only been since I was of that age that that sort of opened up to people, especially like individuals outside of like an agency or studio. Mm. Um, so it was just amazing timing as well. Yeah. That's sort of the Apple effect, the sort of democratization of design to, to everyday individuals is such a kind of a, a sort of landmark thing. So when you were starting it out then, when sort of, uh, inventory was in its kind of infancy, like what were you, what, I mean, how was it, how was it sustaining? How were you doing something else at the same time? Like how was, how, I mean, how were you paying the bills? I suppose when you were sort of in, when you were starting out. <laughs> my friend and I who started it with me, Owen, we were living in a one bedroom apartment that my parents actually owned. So it was very affordable in that sense. Mm. But he was li- sleeping in the actual closet. Like It was a <laughs> mess. It was like a probably two and a half feet wide by six feet long, like kind of weirdly shaped long closet. And he put on some like workout mats and moved from Calgary to Vancouver and like lived in the closet with me. And I remember us like, you know, 
having meetings in there and it was a mess. And we were like, oh my God, we, we've ordered the 5,000 copies of the first issue of the magazine. And we were trying to calculate how many stacks of magazines to the ceiling we could fit in the apartment. <laughs> and so it was very like shoestring. Um, you know, we were, we had an e-commerce at the time and mm. we would shoot everything in the apartment. And there was like a two or three hour window when the sun would bounce off like a glass building beside us and like diffuse the light. So we would like roll out a little like seamless and shoot <laughs> with this lighting at the time. And so it was just like very, very modest. And then it came out looking, you know, pretty nice. <laughs> I love that. I love the sort of the photography studio, editorial, HR, like all the departments <laughs> were rolled into that one one apartment yeah. and it did it did start to grow like in in an extraordinary way like so to talk us through that journey of when it started to really really sort of take flight so like right at the so before it was inventory it was actually called hire collective and that was it's real like online magazine format and mm. at the very end of that we did a collaboration with Gitman Brothers or Gitman Vintage the shirt company mm. and at the time they were not really a brand, but we had got a good introduction and they were down. So, you know, I don't want to say a hundred percent, but it may have been the first collaboration between a clothing company and a blog <laughs> ever. And, uh, so we launched an online store and I had this shirt that we customized in three colors. I had like gray marketed like 20 pairs of APC jeans and 12 pairs of common projects. Uh, a porter tote bag and like a mailing and gets candle. And so it was like a single outfit that you could buy. Mm. But we ended up selling through like hundreds of these shirts uh, pretty fast. And that was like the first real like, oh, this could actually be uh, a business. You know, we could actually do this because having that that retail component really gave us like a little bit of cash and we did this really cool activation at a store road in gray in Vancouver. Um, and it was just like, it really built up this momentum from that point, which really rolled into inventory and we got a really cheap, but cool space in Gastown. And, and, you know, in hindsight, I'm just like, wow, we are so lucky. These things just like unfolded as we needed them. You know, like I said, the, all the magazines, in the like the magazines were under the bed in the closets we stuffed them in the parking spot like my old honda civic had like a trunk full of magazines because there was nowhere else to store them <laughs> and so we were like we need to get a space before the next issue comes out you know <laughs> and like luckily we ended up getting this really cool space that we could work out of and do retail out of and so it was just like extremely lean we barely paid ourselves and, you know, we both did a little bit of like extra work on the side, sort of part-time stuff, um, be it design or little photo shoots, things like that as well. And, you know, the first issue, I think we sold $1,000 of, of advertising and ended up getting close to like 200 by, you know, some of the best ones. So what a journey, yeah. what a journey. And I love just going back to when you were saying that there was the first sort of um, moment that you think of a, of a brand collaborating with a with a blog, like what was that process of kind of trying to explain to them what it was that you were <laughs> and what the potential was? Because I always think that's really interesting when new 
forms of communication come along you know when podcasts first came along it's what it's people talking mm. like what was that dialogue between you and the brand when you were trying to explain to them like no 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 this is this is something that could be really good for both of us yeah i think you know the Chris, who worked at Gitman, he just seemed to get it right away. You know, he could see what we were doing and he seemed to trust it. You know, it was, I was, we were lucky in that sense, you know, and we had a great relationship for years after that. And I'm so thankful for him for, for trusting us because I actually have more memories of all the people that didn't get it and <laughs> couldn't do it, you know, like online advertising or advertorial brands just couldn't understand what that was and that's why we part of the reason we went to print as well was because people were willing to pay for a print ad but just couldn't understand the value <laughs> of investing digitally which now is like you yeah. know almost unimaginable but that was the case at the time so you know it was him we also collaborated with mark mcnary really early on i, I remember I was like working a design internship at a studio and like popping out for coffee on a like designing a shoe with Mark McNary on the phone on my break. <laughs> it was just like this funny time where I felt like I was doing this like super exciting, cool thing. Meanwhile, I was just like doing production on photos at this design studio as well. Yeah, you're kind of making me jump ahead slightly because just thinking about <laughs> what you were saying then of like, um, you know, they couldn't even grasp the concept of digital advertising. Mm -hmm. in, in in respect to to print but like looking at, at today like i feel i feel i don't know you you would be, have a better read of this than i would but i feel like print is is not dead and there, there feels like there there's a bit of a resurgence back to it of people wanting that tactile experience of holding stuff in their hands do you think there is more of a, a flow towards people wanting that more kind of tactile experience and maybe advertisers and brands starting again to see the value of holding something in your hands and maybe sending that their revenue in that sort of direction? You know, I do find it hard to say because living in Los Angeles, especially given the last couple of years of, you know, isolation and whatnot, mm. I feel so disconnected from like walking in the city and seeing what people are buying and things like that. So in my perspective, I haven't bought a magazine in years, so nobody's buying magazines. But I think the reality <laughs> is there is still a lot of value in the printed thing. And coincidentally, I actually really hope there is because I'm I'm working on one right now that's going <laughs> to hopefully come out in June. And so, but my approach to it is like, okay, like making a beautiful print magazine with strong content is obviously the foundation. But beyond that, how can this be dynamic both for a consumer and a brand, you know, mm. so I'm trying to bring different components to it. Like, so I want to have like a, it's going to be around the theme of mindful endurance and mm. the sort of intersection and convergence of, of these two practices that are generally more separated. Um, and so I want to have like a journal section, but I don't want to fill 14 pages of the magazine with a full journal. So my plan is to have like, a couple of spreads and then you can click a QR code or a link and you download, you know, two weeks worth of journal that. that you can use indefinitely. Um, and there's ways to like do things like that with brands as well um, with trials and codes for apps or things like that, or also include like a fuel guide uh, for different length races. So try to make it like useful and dynamic. And then also I want to package it with a, product of some sort. So 
again, it's like you get a magazine, but maybe you get a small towel or a water bo- water bottle, and you know, mm. then you take that on a run or a bike ride, and the brand's logos are on that. So the advertising and the partnership just feels a lot richer and goes so much further beyond just the printed piece. I love that idea. That sounds so cool. Like I love the idea of like combining the different mediums of having that the QR code that links to something else, but also getting something from it as well. Like my kind of earliest memories of childhood were those kind of like magazines that came with like the stickers. You know, mm-hmm. like there's 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 something that you there's an offer that you actually get something physical to hold in your hand as well as like having your mind open by what you read on the pages or in this case what you scan on the on the app. I think there's definite grounds for all all of them combining. And I get what you mean about sort of not really knowing, sort of having a read on on sort of society at the moment. Like mm-hmm. I went to the I went to a bar for the very first time only like a couple of days ago. Just, you know, everything's sort of relaxing over here in the UK. And I felt mm-hmm. like I'd forgotten how to do it. <laughs> I've forgotten yeah, like how totally. to order drinks at the bar. So I feel like there is a little bit of uh of recalibration needed. Mm-hmm. And just sort of rolling back to to your kind of journey, there was a time sort of earlier on, and I've heard you spoke about this, speak about this on other podcasts where you've had sort of issues with your health and and suffering from, from migraines and stuff like that, and various other complications which have kind of led you to to kind of go on a sort of exploration to see if you could find ways to sort of help yourself and that's kind of informed the stuff that you're creating now so can you sort of talk us through that journey for you and where that sort of desire to start exploring within that field came from yeah absolutely so so inventory wrapped up and in kind of end of 2015 early 2016 and and I moved to New York right at that time as well and you know, I was, I was doing a lot more freelance work and, you know, if I could get an extra job and do it on the weekend, I would do it. Um, I was like cramming every minute with something at that time. And, um, I just kind of took that trajectory of workaholic Mm. (laughs) into New York, which is a, you know, dangerous place for that, that sort of addiction um, along with other addictions, I guess. Um, and it just like ramped up from there. You know, I probably had two and a half full-time jobs it felt like going on. I was working with Stussy on a lot of big special projects and I took on a creative director role at Toto Kayo and and I was also doing this huge campaign for Woolrich where we went to Alaska and Utah and had all sorts of terrifying experiences getting trapped in the wild oh i've heard you talk about this on other podcasts wasn't didn't like the plane like break down or something there was like it was like proper drama yeah and and so we went to alaska for this Woolrich campaign and one of the days we rented a really small helicopter to take us out to this glacier like the toe of the glacier kind of comes to the end on this lake which is frozen Uh, i think it was in december and um the helicopter went back to like pick up another model and just never came back. And we were, it was getting dark and we had a guide with us and he tried to like get us off the lake, but it was melting around where we were. So we couldn't get off the lake. And, you know, he was like, he gave one of his ice picks to the photographer or the video guy and was like, hang on to this in case any animals like start approaching. And meanwhile, like one of the models is like building a wind barrier out of snow and the other one is crying. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. Those um, those moments must come along and then make you, well, I'm sure this is where you're going with, with this discourse, but make you really reevaluate if you're on this melting glacier being handed <laughs> an ice pick to defend yourself from animals 
makes you think like what what what, what am i doing in this moment like what i'm out here shooting a, a commercial or a photo shoot for a brand to sell some clothes and things are things are really turning upside down that's got to be a real kind of uh, crossroads moment well you would think so but <laughs> no. it was not actually oh, okay. and the helicopter came with like 30 minutes of light left and i was like okay let's get a model and how many more shots can we get in today what? you know and then that was the trip what i after that day i think i like started with the migraines and and so you know, as the universe and its magical unfolding, one of the models on the trip was a guy I knew from high school, and he had gone kind of gone down this journey and had become a health coach. And we ended up rooming together to save money on the trip. And he was just like, you know, I'm, I think that you might be able to use some of my services and you could use some help because you seem like you're kind of a mess. And I was like, yeah, I think so. What you know, was knew, uh, what was like that hearing that for the first time? Were you when someone sort of kind of calls not calls you out, but kind of sort of sort of I don't know, sort of identifies something within your behavior? Was that were you like did you were you accepting at first, or was that were you like I I don't think you're right. I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. At that point, I was already aware that I was kind of I was struggling and mm. I was breaking down physically. So I had been seeing like a naturopathic doctor and trying acupuncture and touching on meditation and things like that. Um, so I was getting desperate. I, I was kind of down to try pretty much anything. Mm. And as much as I like dip my toe in a lot of those modalities, I was just going even harder in terms of, you know, staying attached to my identity as this creative director, photographer, now living in New York, shooting these big campaigns. So then when I got another job opportunity on like days after that campaign, when I was, you know, absolutely just cooked and my nervous system was totally shot, I took the job, you know, mm. when really my heart was telling me to go lie on a beach for two months, you know, and I remember that and I just couldn't listen. I just couldn't listen. So I could listen to my friend John, however. So I ended up did, I did hire him and, you know, it was a, much more of a drip feed of, mm. you know, try this breath work or, you know, try this type of meditation and um, things like that, listen to some podcasts. So it was like a, it was a gentle way into it, but I did know I needed help. So I was able to accept it at that point. So what was the, what was, it's interesting that thing of when you can feel it in your, in your very heart, knowing that you just needed to lay on a beach for two months, but it's amazing how the sort of internal dialogue can be yeah, can be often ignored, but when a friend kind of confronts you with it, it can have a lot more power. But what was the progression then from that kind of drip feeding of of different practices to really, and not to do a, a, a lazy kind of uh, uh, coining your into the well podcast, but like what was the journey from that drip feeding into to full kind of immersion? I mean... We're talking like ayahuasca ceremonies, like teacher plants, like isolation experiences, DMT. Like uh, what was there? Yeah. How, how did that sort of gather steam for you when you were exploring these different practices? Yeah. So over those first few months going into 2017, you know, it was, it was a very easy sort of pathway into it. And then I took on this job with Toto Kayo, which was an amazing creative opportunity. And I got to do so many cool things that I kind of can't believe I got to do in hindsight, but it was just way too much. And so it was sort of the, the needle that 
or the what is it? Is the straw, straw that the broke the camel's, the camel's back. back. Yeah, yeah. there's a needle and a straw and a, in the hay. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, that's the one. So um, after about seven or eight months of that job, I was like, I gotta quit. I'm not gonna be able to get better, feel better while I'm working and stressed out to this level. So I just felt like I needed to really step away and give myself the space to sort of like look under the hood emotionally. It was like, there's something deeper going on. You know, my body body had been whispering, talking, yelling. And finally I was like, okay, Mm. I need to step away from this, step out of New York and and this work. And so then I had a couple months left um, and John put me in touch with a therapist. And that was like a pretty eye-opening kind of runway to leaving New York and going and doing some workshops and just really diving into the emotional side of it. Um, Mm. You know, I had done, while I was in New York, I went to Thailand and did a 10-day Vipassana. And so I'd done some intense things, but also like in isolation and by myself as kind of my safe place as somebody who's like more avoidant attachment style. Mm. So to go into a group setting in a workshop and really be vulnerable, you know, that is so scary. Mm. Um, It still can be. And so to do that, but it was so healing as well. So I did that and I lived with John and his wife had bought a, basically a small farm on Vancouver Island. So I went and lived with them for a month. And at the end of that, um, ended up sitting with ayahuasca for the first time, which I really didn't know anything about either. So Um, just to jump in quickly there. So mm -hmm. ayahuasca, this is the one that I'm, I'm, I mean, there's a lot to to unpack from what you're saying there, Mm -hmm. but ayahuasca in particular is, is something that I'm, I'm sort of greatly interested. So just to kind of give an overview for people who might not know what ayahuasca is, can you just sort of give us a little bit of an explanation as to, as to what it is, and then maybe go into your kind of experiences with it? Sure. Yeah. So it is a, you know, that people call it a plant medicine or, or, you know, it's psychedelic as well. So it's, it's created generally from two different plants, um, a plant and a root from sort of the Amazon, although sometimes it's grown in Hawaii and a couple of different spots as well. And you basically take these two plants and you cook them down for eight to 14 hours and you get this sort of like sludgy liquid it's it's not too dissimilar from like a prune juice Mm -hmm. or something like that um and so then you you really are only meant to have it in ceremony like a lot of psychedelics you can take you know mushrooms and go walk around or go to the park you know there's a lot of like casual use which is not something i've got a lot of experience in but with ayahuasca specifically it's meant to be in this kind of container where you have a a shaman or medicine holder that's kind of creating a safe space. Uh, It's taken at night, so you drink it. And then within about 30 to 90 minutes, generally speaking, the sort of effects will begin to open up. And so it's one of the plants has DMT in it, and the other plant creates this... uh, can't remember exactly what it is, but it basically blocks your body from digesting it super fast. So it creates a DMT experience that is um, anywhere from sort of four to eight hours long. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, unlike other psychedelics, there is a true 
mother ayahuasca spirit that comes with this medicine. Um, you know, you're, you, there's a real true sense of it. So in the space, the, the shaman or facilitator will generally sing and do chants like Peruvian type chants, or there's other areas in the Amazon where there's different types of chants, but it's quite musical, usually drums chanting and (laughs) every night is different beyond that point. Um, Mm. You know, you could feel a deep connection and heart opening and uh, feel one with sort of the universe and all living things and conscious things. You could kind of go back into your childhood and, and have really powerful visual, you know, memories come up that you had suppressed your entire life. And, and while seeing that, be feeling it, it's completely like in your body where that emotion is stored and potentially purging it out through sort of puking, but kind of calling it purging. And, mm. um, you know, it's, it's, I kind of like talk about walking around in a normal day is like, I'm in like a 3d experience and that is almost like a 10d experience. It feels like. And the, and you prepare yourself for these ceremonies as well, right? There's a level of kind mm-hmm. of fasting and sort of kind of getting the body, ready so that it can fully experience what you're describing. Absolutely. And then that's kind of on different levels because I think before anyone would consider doing something like that, I think it's extremely beneficial to, you know, work with a therapist, do some sort of breath work, yoga, meditation, all of those things are sort of cleaning and cleansing and preparing the mind and body. And then on the diet side as well, like the cleaner you eat, just the more prepared you're going to be. Like if you are eating a bunch of fried food and and heavy meat or something, and then you go into ceremony, the medicine is going to be cleaning that out of your system rather than getting to the more deeper emotional, spiritual stuff. Mm. Like that's the kind of easiest way to talk about it, I guess. Like the more sort of prepared you are as like an instrument, your body is cleaner than the sort of deeper the work you can do. And the more sort of support you have with therapy or breath work or meditation and yoga, then the better foundation you also have in terms of being able to go into those spaces and be able to hold yourself and stay connected to your breath and things like that. And yeah, and have a real kind of respect for for what it is by what you're kind of talking mm-hmm. about there, like have a real kind of, yeah, uh, deference to, to its power. And I mean, you've done it sort of multiple times, like 30, is that 30 plus times or something? You've done it multiple times, right? Is it, and each time is, yeah. is the same. And is there a, is there a cumulative effect or do you, or do you take, take different sort of things from each time? Yeah, I would say it's definitely different each time in terms of the experience. Often when I've done it, I'll do it for like two nights in a row or four nights in a row type of thing. And maybe every, it's been roughly every like, six to 10 months kind of in terms of the cadence. Hmm. And so those two or four night experiences always have, they're connected. There's a theme, there's a similar energy, there's a similar like emotional experience that happens within those. But each night the experience is still very, very different. And then for me, yeah, it's like since I started it, my other practices like I find like with meditation, for instance, my meditation practice is like supercharged by my experience with ayahuasca. And then because of then I 
have a much deeper meditation practice when I go back to the plant medicine, then that experience is mm. even deeper. And then my meditation practice is deeper. So all of the different things really help and support and feed one another. Um, and, you know, the sort of deeper sense of security you have within yourself, the deeper you can go. And, you know, the sort of classic metaphor of the onion, you know, you're peeling off these layers the ones closest to the core are, you know, have been there since your early years as a human being. So they're a lot more challenging. You know, there can be a lot more darkness. It can be beautiful. Um, you know, there's been many nights where I've gone through it and, you know, 90% of it felt like I was in some sort of hell. Mm. <laughs> and then like, and each ceremony you go in, like ideally you have an intention and so you're exploring some facet of yourself. Could it be like fear or shame or a certain relationship or things like that? And every time coming out the end, it's like gives me the most amazing answer to my question, essentially, that I never would have expected. And it's just like mind blowing that that mm. always works out. So even though it can be quite intense, it's always so beautiful and amazing by the end. And these kind of memories, these the tougher layers of the onion that you're sort of peeling back, are we talking like early childhood, like formative years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it can go back to like before you're even born, you know, being in the womb, things like that. Mm. I mean, people have experienced other things well beyond even that, like potentially past life experiences. But certainly in terms of this this lifetime, you know, in our, in our bodies and with the names we've been given in this experience, like mm. everything is possible to sort of touch and see and feel, I would say. And just sort of moving on, speaking of intentions to that, the, the intention of sort of your kind of healing process, like when you were doing these ceremonies and all the, your other kind of practices and, and work, like, was there a specific moment where you could see it was actually starting to help with your kind of own healing? I would say right away, really, wow, okay. you know, um, yeah, from the very first couple times, it was deeply healing. And so, yeah, that's kind of what kept me coming back. Um, it, there was never a question from my very first experience, like whether or not it was valuable. Mm -hmm. And also, I am, I just feel super lucky. Like, I wouldn't say it's for everyone. But considering at the beginning of 2017, I'd never even heard of ayahuasca. And now the experiences I've had, I just feel really blessed that like it's, I've got to experience that as a human in this lifetime. I'm very, very, very intrigued by it. And thank you for, for, for sharing your experiences with it. So this is a running podcast and we are going to touch on movement. I, I apologize, listeners, if, you, <laughs> if you've got this far and they're like, God, when, when are these guys going to talk about running? So when... When did when did movement come into your life then? When when was that? Is that something that was always been a part of your life or is it something you've discovered later in life? And and how have all of the things we've kind of previously sort of talked about, how have they or are they feeding into your kind of journey with movement? Yeah, well, I would say I've always been moving, like since a little boy playing sports. Like I grew up playing baseball, basketball, soccer, pretty much that was like what my year of sport looked like on mm -hmm. rotation. And then as I got, became a teenager, you know, things get more serious. So soccer kind of fell by the wayside and then baseball fell by the wayside and basketball was kind of the last thing. And 
and then I went to university and I was on the basketball team for the first year um, and realized that was not going anywhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, I did some skiing and things like that, um, but always still loved it. And I, so I was playing basketball and, and soccer casually into my 20s. And then when I was about 25-ish or so, I tore my ACL playing soccer. Right. And that was the sort of basically impetus to get into running specifically coming off that injury. Um, I was just like, I needed to move. I wanted to move. And that was kind of like the safest way to, to move, you know, running in a relatively straight line is pretty, <laughs> pretty safe for the ACL. You don't hear too many like running ACL <laughs> injuries. No, no touch wood, touch wood. There. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I kind of fell in love with it and as I came out of that injury, I was like, got back in, or I got in touch coincidentally with my friend, John, who ended up, you know, years later becoming my health coach. And I was like, you know, what kind of stuff could I eat to help with inflammation and training, you know? And so that's kind of when I first got into thinking about my diet in any sort of mindful way. Um, you know, having some juices and smoothies and just being a little bit more aware of what I was eating and when I was eating it and, and pretty quickly, like I was pretty in love with running and I was just running by myself for a while. And I was like, Oh, maybe I'll try like this 10 K race. And then a few half marathons and then some trail races and then a full marathon. And, uh, I did that through like one of the running shops, joined the, like a six or eight week training program. And that was like just such a beautiful experience, like to go through those couple months with total strangers with this mm. goal, you know, in mind and the sort of bonding of, you know, everyone's getting up early on Sunday for the long run. And I was seeing parts of the city I'd never seen. And the trail races were super fun in like North Vancouver. There's just like amazing trails and mountains there. And so that was awesome. And then I ran my first and only marathon up until now in 2015, the year before I moved to New York. Hmm. And I went really well, but it was kind of after that where I really started to have issues with health and, and feeling good. And it was like, I was working like crazy, running all the time and just pushing myself beyond the limits without sort of nourishing myself in a way to, to not basically dig a hole. Mm. So where, where is the balance sort of being struck now then with your kind of journey with exploring all these different practices and sort of kind of healing yourself like where 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 is the sort of where's the fulcrum kind of swung to with your sort of your movement and, and your running in your life at the moment yeah well I mean from there the journey is not so smooth so I kept running while I was in New York and then afterwards but in 2019 when I moved to LA I basically had thrown my running, I literally threw my running watch in the garbage and just like, <laughs> was running just to run at that point. Nice. Like there was no racing or anything. I didn't feel great, but I did enjoy the process of it and just like the sweating it out and all that stuff. Mm. Um, and then when I moved to LA, I ended up tearing my other ACL, which oh. really uh, kind of was quite I mean, painful spiritually. I mean, <laughs> yeah. One, How was that? Was, that? was playing basketball. Oh, Ryan. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I actually had just joined this trail running club in LA and was kind of getting back to that, the joy and love of it. You know, I was like seeing some beautiful areas of 
of this part of the world I had never seen before. And, and again, having that sort of bonding experience with these strangers and um, it was during the NBA playoffs. And on Sunday we had gone for like a 15 or 16 mile trail run. And, you know, I knew I was really exhausted, but I just got like a new basketball. So I was like, I gotta go to the gym. I'm all excited about watching the <laughs> oh, NBA. No. And then like a few minutes before I was going to go home, I just landed on my knee and I just, tore everything to shreds and you know in in hindsight it was great because it forced me to really listen deeper and also gave me an opportunity to really kind of dive into the inner stuff Mm -hmm. and go on these sort of isolation retreats and work with the plant medicines and um and also you know approach movement from a completely different perspective of like strength training and mobility and like more health uh, oriented and natural ways of moving. And, um, you know, that knee is never, it still isn't healed like three years later. Um, But about a year, about 14 months ago, I decided to get into triathlon and, you know, got got my first bike and cycling is fun and pain-free. So that Mm. was good. And, and then it was my kind of idea was like, oh, how can I do triathlon, you know, in a sustainable way? Because I think like that sport especially is mm. pretty classic for people to like burn themselves out and just go really hard and kind of smash themselves. And I knew that's not what I wanted to do, but mm. I did want to push myself. So how could I, you know, come to this sport of three sports and mm. do it in like a healthy, balanced way and that has been a very up and down journey over the last year, I would say. So what uh, that's yeah, it's fascinating as well. And I'm interested in in what sort of learnings you'd garnered from your work with sort of self-healing and how that has trickled into into your kind of performance aspect of your life. Cause just hearing you talk about the the ACL injury. So this that happened prior to your kind of, you know, your plant medicine kind of journey and stuff like that. This this was kind of before that sort of journey. The first one was well before. And then the second one was like kind of at the start of it. Um, Like I had left New York in the fall, winter 2017. And then I guess I would have done the ACL in 2018, actually. So it was about like six months into like leaving New York and and going behind. Because I remember when I did my first like ayahuasca isolation diet, which is like a seven day by yourself in the forest experience, I was like, I couldn't really walk. I was on my, my knee was all ripped up and I hadn't had surgery yet. Okay. So whoa, whoa, whoa. I just got to pause on that. So seven days in the forest on your, on your own, like off the back of this injury, because it's funny, I was interviewing someone this morning, um, uh, a former Olympian and a coach, and he was talking about, um, how injury can be a really lonely place when you're injured and you Mm. can feel like you're really on your own. So, I mean, you've just had that sort of cruel twist of fate of doing your other ACL and then you've gone off and done this seven day isolation. I mean, what was, took us through that? Like what was, what was going through your head? Like during that process? I think, you know, my hindsight awareness of it is a lot greater than it was in the moment, but Mm. you know, I was going through this massive move and shift to being in LA, you know, a huge change in my sort of identity career wise and then having the running and movement taken away from the injury, you know, 
that loneliness was definitely there. And I think at that moment and right before going into that experience was the first time I actually was able to see and acknowledge that I really didn't love myself. <laughs> and mm. so that was a pretty profound, uh, you know, thing to become aware of right before going into this, this experience in the forest and with ayahuasca. And, and so, you know, that whole, that week, um, so much of it was about like reconnecting with, with my heart really. And with, with love and, and opening that back up again. And do you, do you think previously with like fitness and, and movement, you just as interesting, you're saying that you felt like you didn't really love yourself Would that manifest in how you would sort of train and sort of run. Would you, would it be about beasting yourself and like pushing yourself constantly? Was, was that also kind of coming out in a subconscious way in your, in your training? I think there definitely was some of that at play. Like I think probably for almost everyone, but definitely for myself, you know, the idea of, of love and validation was just completely conditional. Like if I mm. made a cool magazine and then I would be loved. And if it was successful financially, then my mom would love me. And if it, you know, all of these things, there was a sort of probably shadow inspiration of of getting that love and validation mm. but with running actually coming off the ACL I really had no goals like over those first years really up until the marathon um it was actually just like beautiful naive running with like I didn't even understand how to use the running watch like I didn't know what splits were when people were talking about it I would just push start and stop mm. and see how fast I went and slowly get a little bit faster so for the most of that like chunk of running which when I was running my best and freest and fastest um it was really there was no attachment to it like I would mm. run half marathons and I didn't even know what the times were until like in the last year, I was like, I wonder what I ran that in, you know, like I just <laughs> did not even care. <laughs> I think there's a lot of runners listening to this would be like, wow, really? He didn't like, was it not straight on Strava? Like, oh my God. <laughs> I know. And in, in hindsight, I'm like, it was, it was actually kind of beautiful. Um, yeah. But now I'm like, you know, looking at all that stuff and paying attention <laughs> to it. And I'm like. Uh, it doesn't feel nearly as good. So I'm like trying to get back to find the balance there. But I guess, you know, the point was by the time I fin did the marathon, it was people that had actually been like, wow, you look like fit. You look like thin, like you're running fast. You're like the fit guy who's in fashion. And it was actually like that identity that I really attached to. And so when I started to kind of crumble physically and not feel as good and felt kind of like bloated and didn't have the same energy, it was like the, the real stress was like this identity that I had glommed onto that I thought everyone was like, thought was amazing of me. And I just like, didn't feel like that was real. And it was that kind of slipping through my fingers that caused so much stress. Mm, so how... Going forward then and looking at, at the at the triathlon where you are sort of obviously becoming more kind of consumed with, with data but not wanting to fall into that same pattern of behavior by needing that sort of validation of being the, the healthy, you know, fitness-loving fashion guy. Like mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you strike that balance when you're in something, you know, when you're training for something like your, your half Ironman or just generally within that sort of field of 
performance when it comes to running a movement? Uh, it's definitely hard and it's an ongoing, ongoing practice for sure. But a big part of it, you know, a lot, a big part of this whole journey, a huge theme has been just like reconnection, reconnecting to myself, to my heart, to nature and the sort of harmony of that pace of life more so. And so when I got into the triathlon and decided to commit to that, one of the kind of key themes that I really wanted to lean into was doing it all like on a heart rate based training. So using a heart rate monitor and doing all the sort of low intensity zone one and two stuff. And while in this sort of spiritual emotional space, you know, the idea of trusting your heart and listening to that, um, which I think is what we need to do more of, mm. it's a little bit abstract, you know, it's not very tangible in a sense. So I like this idea of doing this training based on heart rate. And so you're using technology and data, but it's to help you learn to trust your heart. Mm. So if I'm on a run, you know, damn, like I really got to run this slow. I have to trust my heart. And if this hill is steep, I might have to walk it and really trust it. If somebody runs by me, I don't, you know, go chase after them. And so it helped sort of build a discipline from that. And that that's definitely been a part of it. Um, trusting that process. But it's it's funny, like as I got into running earlier, it was just this like naive, you know, no goals just flowing into it. And now, you know, there's goals and for whatever reason, it's really hard to be patient. And mm. with endurance running tra or triathlon, like you just have to be. There's no shortcuts for building that kind of engine and endurance so that's been a really big teacher is just becoming more patient mm, patience is so key and i just love that sentiment of following your heart but the literal comparison of your heart rate monitor i i can't believe that the pennies just dropped for like that's such <laughs> a sort of beautifully obvious kind of comparison like everyone says oh yeah zone four yeah aerobic threshold but you know you're just listening to your body in the kind of the kind of purest sense. And that's interesting because I heard you draw this quote in another conversation you had where you said the longest spiritual journey is 12 inches from the head <laughs> to the heart, which I think is mm. a is a kind of beautiful, beautiful sentiment to, to share. And I think when it comes to endurance running, be it when you're chasing performance or you're chasing going back to how you once were when you're maybe recovering from an injury, patience is, is so, so key. And in terms of your own practice, sort of specifically focusing on on running is there anything that you're sort of exploring at the moment like before we started rolling you were talking to me about about chi running like I, i've not even heard of that can you can you give us a sort of explanation of what that is to the to the listener and why why you're exploring that at the moment yeah for sure um so you know i think with a lot of my training while there is this sort of heart guided training and a sense of more you know i've been able to clock when i've been exhausted and say okay i'm gonna like take this day off. My training peak says I need to go for a swim and a long ride, but I just know I would be much better served by, you know, doing yoga and sleeping mm. <laughs> and being okay with that. You know, that's been a huge part of it, but really realizing like my nervous system has just been intensely co-opted by this chronic stress. And I got introduced to this Tai Chi and meditation teacher. His name's Adam Misner. And he is kind of like a prodigy of like push hands and Tai Chi, but he really teaches 
it's so much more about the internal mm. and like sort of this ironing out of the nervous system and becoming more song, he calls it, which I'm sure is like the traditional way, which is essentially like just released and fluid and letting, you know, mm. the energy of in our body, electricity flow through us rather than like muscling through. And I've kind of realized I've really been like muscling through so much of my training and I've really been quite choked off and cut off from that sort of life force energy flowing, which ultimately is, you know, what helps us enjoy it and perform better. So it's become this really big shift for me to lean into that, uh, both with meditation and starting to do some Tai Chi. And then, yeah, there's this book written, I think, in 2004 by Danny Dreyer called Chi Running. And he basically studied with this Tai Chi master and thought it'd be interesting to integrate a lot of these principles into running. And so I've been reading the book and I got like a two and a half hour lesson from this master Chi running coach in LA last week. And, you know, the, the general principles, there's like some physical components where it's really about the posture and then you're kind of having a slight forward lean. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're letting gravity do more of the work rather than, and then rather than your muscles, you're sort of creating a structure and a posture where your body's just kind of in a more of a flowy state you know, your fascia and that elasticity is kind of carrying you along the earth rather than you forcefully running mm. along the earth. Mm. Um, and then also a component of it is, is using a metronome. So you increase your, your cadence to between 170 and 180 steps per minute. And so that's actually reasonably faster than at least I was running and probably a lot of people run. So there's this sense of you know, it's really uh, helpful with like injury prevention and performance. Um, and then there is this sort of energy Tai Chi component to it as well. So I, I ran a half marathon in January and I just felt like I was running through sand was <laughs> like in like a coat of armor. Like I was just trudging along the last seven kilometers and just felt like this isn't how we're supposed to run. This, this is not <laughs> supposed to feel. And so just like from that moment on, like I got introduced to this Tai Chi teacher and then I, he told me about the Chi running. And so these things have just totally unfolded for me at just the right time where even on my spiritual and emotional path, I'm actually ready for it. I'm ready to trust these things and, and experience them. And so it's been just a week and a half, but honestly, I noticed quite a difference already, like going on an hour and a half run. I'm so much less sore and tired and, mm. and it's feeling good. So I'm, I went from like using all my muscles as much as possible to trying to use my muscles as little as possible and, and bringing that to the bike as well. And I'm just feeling much fresher and, and better so far. It's fascinating. And it's interesting that, do you think you're kind of, um, your history with with med mindfulness and meditation is a bit of a primer for when you kind of engage with something like that, which is a sort of might be a new practice for you that you're kind of more open to being okay. Let's let's experiment with this. Let's explore what it can do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because you know I I remember like my first couple of months after leaving New York, I bought 
like Alan Watts, the watercourse way. And I was like, Oh, the, the Dow sounds pretty interesting, mm. but like, I never read it. I never listened to Alan Watts. I just like, apparently I wasn't ready. And now in the last year, I've just, I've probably listened to a hundred hours of Alan Watts and so much about like the Dow and, and Lao Tzu and Wu Wei and all of these concepts. And, and now after I've been able to understand those concepts and meditate on them over the last year, six months, now all of a sudden the practices have emerged with the perfect teachers. And it's just like, it couldn't have unfolded in a better way. You know, I just wasn't ready before and now I am ready. And because of all the things that have come before it, I'm in a place where I can take it on and embrace it and, and hopefully embody it. Mm, sounds so, so exciting. And obviously with, with all of the stuff you collate together into, into the well and all your stuff previously as well, like you always feel that you're getting excited about new things that are eventually going to trickle down and, and everyone else is going to get excited about them as well within, within sport, within movement, within, within wellness and touching on chi running. I'm already fascinated by sort of exploring it m myself, but are there, are there other things like on your kind of cultural radar that are, that are sort of getting you excited and you think will be trickling into to sport or fitness in the, in the future? Yeah, you know, the like the the Tao and the philosophy behind that, I just feel like is so much it's really the way the way forward. And it's like the the way is the no way. You know, the practice is the goal and the goal is the practice. Like all mm. of these sorts of approaches, because you know, the reality is like aside from, you know, maybe a couple hundred people on earth, like we're not winning races, we're not setting world records. So, you know, why are we doing these things? And, yeah. um, you know, there's lots of good reasons, uh, you know, learning who we are, you know, what happens when we get to that moment of like saying to ourselves in a race, like, what the fuck am I doing out here? You know, why am I doing this? <laughs> and having some sense of an answer to that, that feels good and feels nourishing and then consistently taking ourselves to that point, you know, and beyond. And so we grow and, that inspires others. We learn about ourselves. Um, you know, there's so much richness that comes through sport, but I think it's like bringing the intention and philosophy from these other practices that really can enrich that. So for me, the most exciting thing right now is really exploring this kind of intersection of mindfulness and endurance and the sort of, not just the intersection, but like the convergence of those two things in a new way, because I think, you know, there are people that have explored that and, and have developed some really interesting techniques, but now we have more technology, we have more data, science, awareness, plus the ancient sort of wisdom and teachings. And we're in a also a new challenge, like you said about like coming out of COVID or like, we got to like recondition mm -hmm. ourselves for socialization. And there's a lot of us, myself included, that are you know, desperate for community and connection again. So how can we come back together in a way that we can sort of grow, inspire and support one another? And so for me, that's like what I'm really excited about now. Mm, I think that community thing is is a really lovely thing to be getting excited about because you're about to do, there's like a, a run program that you're about to sort of start in, in Los Angeles. Is that right? Sort of a guided run program? Yeah, exactly. So 
uh, I guess I'm sort of announcing this now, but <laughs> my plan is to launch this kind of new brand, for lack of a better word, um, called MEP, which stands for Mindful Endurance Program. And so that is going to basically into the well is going to sort of fold into that. So it's going to include a podcast and content, and that's going to be the title for the publication. And mm. then there's going to be some product as well, but experience being sort of the apex of what I really want to offer to bring all these things together. And so the first kind of offering is going to be this, yeah, six part run series uh, here in LA. And so we're going to really be like exploring all of these different things. Um, bringing in breath work and meditation and sharing um, the connection to one another and also to the earth. You know, I love this idea of like doing intervals, but then, you know, just lying on the grass and like feeling the energy from mm. the grass or the trees and uh, reconnecting in that way to just like this energy and beauty that's kind of all around us and, so yeah, we're going to have kind of different themes for each of the six parts. And uh, my friend Rio Lakeshore is going to co-host and we might have a couple like guest kind of teachers, maybe like, like a breathwork teacher or maybe have the chi running coach come in and, and really try to like shift the approach to running, you know, to mindfulness and like just try and be a little bit more intentional and do it in, in connection with the group. Mm, that sounds so, so exciting. And I think that that word intention, I think is really, really key because I feel like a lot of people will subscribe to the idea of running and the benefits sort of mentally, but maybe not sort of having a sort of having a focused, like you say, intention of like, well, let's really sort of smash the two together and, and think about how we can bring on a more senseful, a, a sense of mindfulness or a sense of a connection to other people or to ourselves or to to the earth by this thing that we love this thing that we do like dragging ourselves mm -hmm. around a half marathon and feeling like why the heck am i doing this or you know going to the end of a full marathon or a triathlon or whatever like is always a cause for in great internal dialogue so why can't we focus this mm -hmm. to something that could be really really exciting and beneficial yeah i think so i th i really think there's there's so much that can come from, from these experiences in, in sport, you know, it's, it's really, a the invitation is there to just learn and grow so much, but like you're just saying, the intention needs to be, you know, I think like a lot of people will say like, Oh, running is my meditation, but you know, are you just saying that or are you going, you know, before your run, are you saying like, you know, my intention is to meditate on this run and, um, maybe like, you know, ask something even more specific and then go off on your run. And, and even the idea of mindfulness, you know, it's become such a throw, throw around word. And I've kind of like even neglected to take on that word as like a mindful athlete. Like I didn't want to get sort of put in that area, but now I feel like there's a lot that can be done with that. And, mm. but, you know, just being mindful by itself, isn't necessarily like skillful or a good thing. Like you could be mindful of, you know, having obsessive thoughts or mm -hmm. being a shopaholic or, yeah. or whatever it is, you know, that doesn't, that's not something you necessarily want to be mindful of. It's going to like spike your anxiety mm. and whatnot. So it's like, well, how can we be mindful of what's happening, you know, and, and with everything, there's a yin and a yang. And so, you know, the, the mindfulness being the sort of, feminine 
but then how can we engage with that mindfulness to make it productive, you know, mm -hmm. and either change the habit of what we're being mindful about or be mindful about something that is more productive. Mm. It's so true. I feel like everyone is mindful in their own way. Like everyone's mindful of everything. Like, like you say of, you know, feeling insecure or beating themselves up or being angry or jealous or whatever. We have an incredibly active mind, but it's like, what can we do to actually in, inflect that in a, in a positive, positive way and use it for, for the good and, and draw that to, to running. And that feels like a, a lovely note to end what has been a really broad exploratory discussion on so many subjects. And thank you so much for, for rolling with the, with all these different themes that we've touched on. Ryan, you've been such a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for coming on the big run. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it helps me understand more about my own process getting asked great questions like this. So thank you so much for having me. A big thank you to Ryan for being so open and sharing his story and all those incredible experiences and venturing into the well. The name of his very successful podcast that I strongly recommend you check out. There's some really fascinating conversations there and I'll be linking to Ryan's work and his uh, website and all of his uh, socials so you can check out the kind of work that Ryan creates. Again, thank you so much to everyone that tunes in week on, week out to listen to the podcast. I'm really, really grateful. And yes, the monthly magazine marches on. So please send me your running stories, whatever they are, whatever they're about, whatever movement means to you. Put it down in some words and send it over to me. And I want to bring it to life through the power of audio. I'll leave all the channels in today's show notes so you can communicate that to me. And I'll also put in all of the details about the SOAR competition. So remember, we have the performance of the month competition running and we also have that incredible 15% off discount for all of you lovely listeners of The Big Run. That's Big Run 15. If you punch that in at the checkout at SOAR running, you'll get 15% off as well as a chance to win a marathon system. Oh, it's a good episode. There's, there's lots on offer. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and I'll see you next week.